and welcome to another edition of the Beer of Honor podcast, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How are you doing? I'm doing well. We're doing this on a uh, uh, Friday afternoon, which isn't typical for us. That's so, right. So Sorry. I'm feeling relaxed, ready for the weekend. Yeah, me too. We've got some beer here. We're going to talk about beer. Try to avoid the news of the day. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is the Friday morning after uh, something big happened over in uh, the UK. Yeah, the Brexit. They the, Brexited. The Brexit. There was a Brexit that happened, yes. Yeah. Uh, and and you, just to introduce the reader to your, your uh, multi-dimensional background, mm-hmm. are a subject of the Queen, is that right? Uh, I am indeed. I've pledged an oath to defend her honor. Your, uh, your mother is English, and you were, you were born here in the United States, but you're a, you're a dual citizen. Uh, that's correct. And now my beautiful UK passport, which used to allow me to live and work all over Europe, is not, well, will <laughs> at some point no longer be nearly as valuable as it uh, it was. Not yeah. that I've taken too much advantage of it, but my brother and sister have, or particularly my sister, who now is living in London and working in London, so that's not going to change, but she was in Paris for a long time. So, uh, so yeah, uh, New Days, we can discuss the implications of that to uh, to world beer, I suppose. Um, yeah, uh, a little bit, a little bit later. Uh, but before we do, we should introduce ourselves. Um, with me, of course, as always, Jeff Allworth, author of the Beer Bible uh, from Workman Publishing and Cider Made Simple from Chronicle Books. Uh, you can order both at Powell's dot com. Uh, you can also find him blogging at uh, Beervana, and he writes and blogs for All About Beer magazine. And with me is Patrick Emerson, a professor of economics at Oregon State University. Um, now in the summer recess, yes? Yes, as of June 15th. Oh, very nice. I am so unattached. Excellent. <laughs> so I have, I have my, my three-month break now where I try to get everything done that I put off during the academic year. <laughs> right, right. Well, it allows for a Friday podcast, so that's a good thing. That's true. And uh, Patrick blogs at uh, Beeronomics mm-hmm. and tweets at at Beeronomics. So that's, look for him there. That's right. And you tweet at, at Beervana as well. I didn't right. mention that. So, uh, so our topic of the day is going to uh, be a little different. Over the last few months, Jeff, as you might have noticed, has been uh, uh, jetting around the world, uh, um, <laughs> going on junkets uh, paid for by large European breweries. Um, on both occasions, there was an event uh, serving as a pretext, essentially, to invite a bunch of beer writers out. Um, but Jeff, while there, was interested in learning a little bit more about what these big breweries do and how they work. Uh, so today we're going to talk about his trips, um, what he learned um, from visiting these big breweries and his observations, and I'll talk about uh, the economics, um, as I see it, uh, behind the future and these um, these big breweries. Yeah, that's that's going to be an important part of this whole discussion, because well, it's under. It, it's easy for me to understand the the way small breweries work. These things mystified me, so I'm hoping you can interpret what's going on. Yeah, and I have been contacted actually by two different reporters in the last couple of weeks. Same theme though, and it's been the same theme that people want to talk about, which is what's going on with all this consolidation. Where is craft beer headed? Is there going to be? A, is there a craft beer bubble? Same kinds of things that I've been answering questions. So, this sort of future of beer. Uh, in general, is still a uh, a very uh, prescient topic for for people out there. So, um, I have some thoughts about it, uh, and thoughts about where the market's headed in the U.S. as well. So, we'll talk about that. Very cool. And before we do that, of course, uh, we got to do the news. The news. We have some news today. We do. We have, we have some kind of big news. So, uh, 
Uh, we weren't actually, this wasn't even on our, our, our script sheet because I didn't think it was going to happen, but uh, we threw it on there, the Brexit. We should talk just a minute about the Brexit because it does touch on trade, which is a big thing, especially in the topic we're going to be touching on today, mm-hmm. uh, international beer uh, conglomerates. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm less interested in how well Carlsberg is going to be able to sell beer in, in, uh, in the UK or vice versa. Yeah. As I am kind of like, you know, I, I'm interested in seeing how trends trends move around in beer. And I, I don't know, is this, you know, England's always had its own special kind of brewing culture, drinking culture. Do you see this as a withdrawal? Maybe it could be good for beer culture. The, the British are severing ties to Europe. What I don't know. What do you see? What's what's how's this going to play out? I don't. I mean, in beer, I don't see uh, the, uh, the big impact. Uh, you know, I don't think the macro brewers, the big global conglomerates, are going to be affected by this too much. Um, I think the English economy or the British economy, although it might become the English right. economy when the Scots <laughs> leave and do their own thing, uh, and the Northern Irish and all that. So, um, yeah. uh, I don't think that's gonna that's gonna matter too much. Uh, to them, um, they're big multinational corporations. Anyway, they shift assets and, and profits around to deal with better tax taxing situations. And, and a lot of what matters to local brewers are local excise taxes that are charged uh, locally. But the one thing that I think could do, and I'm not sure how much the sort of the nascent craft beer, and I say that as opposed to sort of the traditional brewers and in Britain, um, which I think are still probably largely local, local, although I imagine they do a fair amount of sales across Europe. Um, but I think also the up-and-coming sort of craft brewers that are a little mm-hmm. bit more sort of American in style. Right. Um, more uh, more international and outward-looking. Well, I imagine that access to European markets is a big deal for them. It's not that far away. It's just like a, an Oregon brewer looking to start selling in California, for example. Right. Uh, an English brewer trying to start selling in Spain um, would be... a. a this is the thing that is unclear right now because right now there's free movement of goods and services and people and, and laborers uh, throughout Europe. Um, so it's very easy to take your beer and, and, and sell it um, in other parts of Europe and it might become a lot less easy to do so. Um, so it could have an implication, I think, for these smaller, more upstart breweries potentially and maybe the sort of the smaller, the smaller traditional breweries as well, the, the uh, Fuller's and Sam Smith's and people like that how are you feeling personally your, your mother is uh she grew up in london but she's actually scottish so you're a, you know you're a you have this big personal connection to the 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 british uh and both kind of separate connections to the english and the scottish how, yeah how, do you, how are you feeling this morning yeah see she's she's english but but yes our family is originally from scotland so um uh well i wasn't for the brexit i'm an economist and i thought a lot about the economic gains that a union of 500 million people uh, um, afford, and I think that I think that the UK gets much more than it gives in that scenario. Um, I also find it disappointing that the sort of politics of xenophobia and anti-immigration is has had had enough tra- has had enough traction uh, uh, in the UK that that people would vote against this. So so I'm disappointed. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm also, though, a little bit, and I suppose I'm like this in general, but I think in the end, you know, uh, I do think there'll be consequences. I think that they will be significant consequences, but uh, I don't think in the long run it's going to be catastrophic or there's going to be a huge sea change. Um, It could 
spell interesting times of the union itself um, because now there might be pressure from other countries that have mumbled about potentially leaving like Spain and Portugal and others. Um, what's curious to me is that the UK had the best of both worlds. They had their right. own currency, so they had these fiscal control, the fiscal and monetary controls that other countries didn't, most notably Greece. So when Greece had its financial crisis, it couldn't do what most countries do, which is devalue its currency and make its exports cheap to other people and be able to try to jumpstart the economy that way. Well, the UK can and right. does. Right. Uh, so they had a really unique position. They were really sort of a special case. Uh, and even in that sort of special treatment they got, um, they didn't stay. So uh, yeah, it's a disappointing day for me, but I also think that, that the, uh, the empire will survive. Yeah. That's what's left of it. It <laughs> is. Thinking. I don't know. I, as an American, I, I guess I have a little bit of a connection too, and it just makes me feel a little bit sad. There's, there's a, I think there's a really good chance this leads to the breakup of, of the Britain, the final, you know, the final dissolution of Britain and it goes back to England and Scotland and maybe, you know, I think just the inconvenience in Ireland of having two countries, it could even make Ireland, Northern Ireland, uh, join the Republic. So I don't know that all that stuff, just the dissolution seems, it leaves me feeling melancholy this morning. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say that it's, you know, my meta analysis is that this is the new world that we're in, in which, uh, we've reached a point where people are starting to be you know, we've globalization has come so fast and so quick, and right. with technology, it's become truly a global world. And instead of uh, embracing that, people seem now to be turning their back on it, getting worried about what that uh, what that signifies and the kinds of um, negative aspects. So, yeah, uh, I think it's a shame. Oh well, uh, especially when we're talking about beer, and I love I love beer around the world. So I'm all of a I'm a globalist, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. <clears throat> well, we'll keep our eye on that one. Yeah. Uh, and it's going to be a slow story, so we'll have time to study it as yeah, it goes along. Yeah, a few years before they leave anyway. So Yeah. All right, next uh, next bit of news. Yeah, so the next bit of news was is that uh, we, we mentioned this on a previous pod, that a guy sued Miller Coors, uh, claiming that he was being duped into thinking that uh, Blue Moon was a craft beer, uh-huh. and he wanted, he wanted uh, justice. <laughs> and uh, last week... The judge in that case threw it out, which mm. is hardly surprising. <laughs> that has uh, it was one of the most insane cases uh, we've seen come down. And actually, one of the most in- interesting things is that the name of that judge was uh, Gonzalo Curiel, uh, whom people who follow American politics might recognize as the judge who is overseeing the Trump university lawsuit and who trump has been hammering in the Uh, press so it's the same judge same one Uh, i see so you may draw your own conclusions there well essentially because even the craft beer community can't really agree on what craft beer the term craft beer means there really isn't a term of art anyway that uh or a uh um a term that everybody agrees on that, that signifies craft beer so to say that you know what you're serving isn't craft and well, why isn't it i don't know yeah uh, by the way and, and this we have this quote from him on that exact point too right. do you want to read it uh yeah sure i'll read it at best these advertisements contain generalized vague and unspecified assertions that amount to mere puffery upon which reasonable customer could not rely <laughs> all right so well caveat emptor there <laughs> if it says craft you got to make your own call uh, by the way, and this reminds me, and I should have added this to the news item, but I'll do it now on the hot, uh, on the fly, Excellent. Which, which is um, you uh, in the past um, 
spearheaded spearheaded this thing called the Honest Pint Project, uh, yeah, which true. was uh, a, a, a um, effort to stop the use of um, uh, pubs uh, selling what they termed a pint of beer in a glass that didn't even hold a pint of liquid, 16 ounces, is what recognized in the United States as a pint. Right. Uh, and I think it's actually had an impact. I think you find fewer and fewer places that uh, that do this, and most places now are very specific about the amount of beer they're serving you. They'll say the ounces, for example, rather than just use pint as a term. And, and, and uh, uh, what's interesting to me is this lawsuit that um, uh, has been filed, I guess, against Starbucks for uh, selling lattes that are uh, basically short pours in, right. in their cups. So it made me think of the, the Honest Latte Project or something someone can do, can do there. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, I hope it's had an effect. It does seem like we, in Portland, at the very least, in Portland, uh, the cheater pint is kind of a thing. It's it's going away. Mm-hmm. Most most pubs, most respectable, certainly brew pubs and most pubs don't do that anymore. And I don't know. I, I have no idea how. Much like the people in, in the uh, in the UK weren't really certain how much benefit they got from being in the EU. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how much benefit I brought to the. Portland pub drinking scene, but uh, you know. Yeah, but it brings us back to the Brexit because now the British can have their imperial pint glasses back. Uh, right, this was a big problem when the when the European standards came in, and they couldn't they couldn't label their their glasses with pints anymore, right? Uh, but they but they kept the imperial pint. I think it's still the measure. Yeah, the the, the imperial pint exists, but the official measure in yeah. for the EU is uh, metric. The so. leader. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, next one. Uh, the next one, this is just kind of a quickie. Uh, Mitch Steele, who is was a, a brewer who worked for Anheuser-Busch and went to work for uh, Stone and did a lot of work over the last 10 years for Stone, is yep. leaving to start his own project. And um, not a whole lot to say there, except I just wonder, as I saw that go by, uh, to what extent I wonder, and this is just a rhetorical question, although feel free to weigh in, mm-hmm. uh, to what extent does... Uh, in a brewery the size of Stone with as many established products and, and uh, as big an identity as it has, to what extent does a brewer like Mitch Steele bring to the table and is losing him going to be that much of an effect on, on the brewery's direction? Yeah, it's interesting because there's a rapid expansion in craft beer, which means two things. Um, one is there's a, a growing demand for talented brewers, uh, but two, that there are a lot of Brewers that are being trained or apprenticed right now um, by our established exceptional brewers as well. So I wonder which which of those trends is moving faster, the demand or the supply. Right. Um, because around here it seems like the supply is uh, moving faster than the demand, and that I'm I'm constantly surprised at how good the beer is coming out of these new breweries. I know um, that it seems to be just the overall level of talent has just risen remarkably uh so in terms of just uh, uh human capital i would imagine that um they wouldn't feel too much of a of a sting i think the 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 bigger hit comes from when the brewery is a big part of the personality of the brewery and what people identify as a as sort of a, a part of the heart and soul of the brewery right and i don't think that was the case here stone would already had his personality before mitch came so stone has a personality yeah, yeah. <laughs> We can probably expect it to continue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. This last one's all you. Last one's all me. Um, just hit, hitting the wires uh, yesterday or the day before. Um, 
all of the news, so I'm sure everybody's very familiar <laughs> with this, is the fact that uh, somebody stole from uh, Atlanta's Sweetwater Brewing Company uh, 3,300 cases of beer. Um, essentially what they stole were two trailers from the brewery, and they're full of beer. So that's uh, almost 80,000 bottles of, of beer in these, 12, in these mixed 12 packs. Which, uh, which is a lot of beer. Which is a lot of beer. Yeah. That's a lot of beer. And it, and, and, and it mean, immediately made me think of the old uh, mafia days when they would hijack the, the, <laughs> cigarette, the cigarette trucks and sell the cigarettes. It'd be a shame if anything happened to that, that trailer of beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what if they were contacted a few hours later? You want your beer. Uh, uh, but the other thing that, that I found curious was this happened on a Tuesday morning, uh, and I think just this past Tuesday. Uh, and by Tuesday afternoon, they had located... Uh, the trailers because apparently they had GPS devices, but they were empty, so the beer is still gone. Uh, but then later that afternoon, they found a quarter of the beer in a warehouse uh, just south of Atlanta. And this is what was interesting to me. So, so it was gone for like 12 to 16 hours, it sounds like. Maximum. Maximum. And uh, the, um, uh, the um, I'm trying to look, look here in... Um, Oh, the marketing, the marketing director of the, of the company said this uh, in response. It says, we can no longer trust that the beer would be up to the quality standards that we as a brewery maintain. So unfortunately, we have to destroy it all. So, <laughs> makes, so, you, makes you wonder what happened in those 12 hours. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's like 800 cases of beer they're talking about destroying. And my first thought was, well, just taste it. Yeah. Like, you can tell if the quality is still there. Yeah. And in 16 hours, it's really hard to imagine what could have happened to the beer that would destroy the quality. It was put in a furnace, for example. Or, right. I don't know. Uh, anyway, so that's my news. Of that was, uh, <laughs> you're right. Very. We debated whether that last qualified as news. And you can, uh, you can weigh uh, in. Yeah. That's, new, that's news to me. That's, <laughs> what, that's what I care about. You put, the bre- you put the Brexit on there, and I put it's the 3,300 missing cases of beer. And the Brexit really has nothing to do with beer, and I put it on there anyway. All right. So let's, talk, let's turn to our main topic then, and let's return to Europe, in fact. Yeah. Uh, so um, you were invited to go to the Guinness Brewery, and you were invited to go to the Carlsberg Brewery, uh, both relatively recently. Uh, so why don't you just um, set up the scene? Why why were you traveling there? And um, uh, tell us about the nature of the junkets and the companies themselves. Yeah. Uh, so these things, as a writer, these things are always a little bit dicey. And as writers, we talk among ourselves about whether or not we should go on junkets. Um, a junket is when a brewery says, we will fly you over here to our brewery and wine and dine you or beer and dine you and show you something in particular that we want you to see. Uh, and then fly home and, you know, you'll have a great time. And, and of course, their idea is that I will see that thing and write about it and talk about how great the brewery is. And, and uh, the quid pro quo is that I write the story that, that they hope that I see. Um, there, is no, there is no actual quid pro, pro quo. So I go over there and I look around and try to figure out what is interesting to me. And then I, I write about that. Um, and, and so... When I went, that was sort of my interest, and I think I hope that when people hear this conversation today, they'll see that we're really digging into these breweries. One one thing is, it's hard to go to uh, Carlsberg in Copenhagen or uh, Guinness in Dublin on your own dime. So right. if you can get in there, it's kind of nice to have somebody pay for it. Uh, so the two occasions, uh, the the Guinness thing, um, there's a, a man named Michael Ash. I think we've talked about on the pod uh, mm-hmm. who invented nitrogenation. Mm-hmm. 
and they were honoring him. He was 88 years old. They were honoring him at the brewery, and they were going to take a victory lap about having invented uh, the nitrogen dispense system. Mm -hmm. And um, they invited some writers to cover that, and I was one of them. Uh, And then it was actually, I I think it was a really good thing they did that because he died uh, within six weeks of of that event. So it was Mm -hmm. nice to meet him and then... um, and have that honor. The Carlsberg thing was came out of the blue, and they they flew in people from all over the world. There were uh, not so many Americans, but there were people from Malaysia and Turkey and all over Europe. Uh-huh. Uh, and the idea there was they had discovered an old bottle, and this is kind of a this is a story that you see a lot. Um, you'd find an old bottle, and you try to cultivate the yeast and crop it up and uh, make a beer out of it. And they, that's what they did. It was called a rebrew, uh-huh. and um, they did their very best to recreate this beer authentically. So they um, found an old heirloom uh, variety of barley from the seed bank and grew mm-hmm. it and floor malted it at a distillery. Uh, they had the specs on the water so they could treat the water the same way. They actually had very little information about the hops, which is not surprising. When you look at these old recipes, they always just say hops. Yeah, it's like five, you know, five pounds of hops. Uh, so there's going to be more than five pounds. So just some some measure of hops, and it'll say where the hops came from. It will not tell the variety or anything uh, else. Um, certainly not IBUs or anything like that. So right. it said something about I think that it was either German or maybe from Hollertau, uh, and they decided you know they had to kind of just guesstimate what to do there. Right. So they made this funny old beer and invited everybody to come and and taste it. Um, and in both 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 times I. I did my best to poke around the brewery and see what made these two breweries tick. And what I found in both cases uh, is that these large breweries are kind of weird and amorphous entities, and it's hard to understand what makes, what, you know, how they, why they operate the way they do, and and what they're thinking of. And uh, there, you know, when you walk into a little small. American craft brewery. Everything is right out there. You know, mm-hmm. there's the brewer. He's making the beer. He's trying to make the best beer he can. Um, he's trying to sell it to you directly. It's all the mechanisms of that business are super obvious. Right. The mechanisms of large multinational beer companies are not so obvious. Yeah. And uh, but let me uh, let me just uh, sort of insert a parenthetical here, which is that in both cases, the the sort of uh, genesis of the junket is breweries or big big breweries, big brands, uh, trying to connect with some kind of history. Uh, and I mention this because Guinness has been on a big publicity tear. I see a lot of advertisements in which they're both pushing new beers, like their American lager and their nitro IPA, speaking of nitro, so this is a good good moment to sort of uh, uh, emphasize their history with nitrogenation. Right. Nitrogenation. Um, <clears throat> But also, I think that that since that's such a big part of craft brewing, uh, this idea that we are sort of traditional brewers with a history, we're not just uh, some big uh, industrial corporation um, or uh, industrial entity, uh, is a big is a big part of modern uh, PR for these com- companies, I guess. Yeah, it it is, and I would like to talk about that. I hope let's hold off on that mm-hmm. until the end because I think that's one of those things where I would. I, I, uh, I think that's an opportunity that's completely completely blowing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because they don't think... That I, one thing that it looks to me like from the outside is that craft brewers and big brewers think very differently. Yeah. If the big brewers started thinking like craft brewers, they would find some resources that they're currently unaware of. Mm-hmm. 
and which would be obvious to anyone from the, the craft beer world, which, you know, we really are from the craft beer world. And so it's pretty obvious to us looking at this stuff. Right, right. Uh, yeah, so sorry to, to, to interrupt your flow. Go ahead. No, it's a great question. It's a, I, and I was definitely planning to head there. Okay, so. we'll, we'll, we'll circle back to it. On the same page, but a little bit further down. Yeah, so let's just, uh, let's start out with the top thing. This is the one thing that, um, and one of the big things that struck me as distinctive between these two com- companies is that uh, they have different, slightly different ownership structures. Right. And uh, when I went to Guinness, the first time I went to Guinness, um, I had this sense of a giant. So Guinness is owned by Diageo, mm-hmm. which is a company that was formed when in the 90s. Yes, the 90s. Uh, Guinness, which was at that point a, a, a mainly a beer company, had a little diverse portfolio, but it was mainly a beer company, right. uh, merged with Metropolitan Group, which was a drinks and food company. Mm-hmm. And they were each valued at about the same amount of money, each valued at about 10 billion pounds. Um, but in the interim, since then, Guinness's, the, the beer side has really fallen off. They they uh, they later dumped the food thing, so they were just a drinks company, mm-hmm. and they added Seagram's and grew the drinks, and now beer accounts for something like 18% of the entire portfolio right. of Diageo. So not in, not nothing, but definitely they're not a you can't say they're a beer company. Right. Diageo is not a beer company; it's yep. a drinks company. Right. Um, so that's on the one side. On the other side, you have Carlsberg, which was founded uh, in the 19th century by a guy who did a curious thing um he his name was uh jc yeah, jacobson mm-hmm. and he came from a family of brewers founded this brewery and assumed his son carl whom he named the brewery after uh-huh. he, put the, he put the brewery on a little on a little berg a little hill uh-huh. and he called it carlsberg uh-huh. he assumed that carl would be the uh, heir to his fortune but as carl grew up carl was sort of a artistic guy and not quite as hard hard-bitten as his father and then he began to question whether Carl was really the true heir and so he set up a foundation and the foundation is composed of uh, five professors appropriately so yes and they're three are from the hard sciences one from social science and one from the humanities and one of those yeah yeah and one of them is um, set up as the uh, the chairman and the chairman oversee is the the chairman of the foundation oversaw the beer company and the beer company then made money which founded you know the the foundation would siphon off and put into research and 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 other stuff uh and the five professors are appointed by the danish royal academy of sciences so it's kind of a it seems very scandinavian in, in its way you know it's like a really uh Bernie Sanders, uh, social democracy way to set up a corporation. Right. So, so wait a minute. There's a foundation that is funded through the profits of Carlsberg Brewery. Right. And the foundation runs the brewery. Yeah. So then, so it did for a long time. Okay. But as the brewery grew and grew and grew, uh, they started to buy. They 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 did what other they looked they behaved quite a bit like a beer company. They they spread out and uh, and added brands and and kind of went over across the globe and then and then at some point i I don't actually know when this is i looked around for it and i couldn't find it and i think i asked somebody who didn't write it down but but at some point they became a public company and the ownership share of the foundation dropped to like 30 percent. okay so the the foundation is still a major player but it's a publicly traded company and they the foundation has the the largest plurality of 
they're the major st- shareholder. Shareholder, but, but there is a there's a board of directors. As there's, you know. there's a he, there's a CEO. I don't know. If there's a board of directors. There's mm-hmm. a CEO uh, who just came on. His name is Keys to Heart, and he's a he's a. Um, but somebody hires and fires him. Yeah, yeah. So somebody hires. Presumably, there's either a board of directors or the foundation. It could be, yeah, it could be the foundation. Actually, yeah, that would be interesting. So these are two different, entirely different corporate structures. Mm-hmm. And as I was there, uh, in both of these places, I, I felt that they had really different effects on the way these companies behave. Sure. Yeah. And it just seems to be kind of wandering a little bit. Like mm-hmm. they have their one product. And um, I mean, part of it is they do have really different products. So Guinness is just, Guinness is, a, is an iconic brand that, it's, it's not like an interchangeable mass market logger that you can just buy other mass market loggers and, and put them in your portfolio. Right. But also, you know, there hasn't been a lot of brand development in the last, well, since Michael uh, Ash did the nitrogenation, it's been a fairly static product. Mm. And um, the the amount of beer they sell has really dropped. They're down to... they. Uh, I actually just saw a thing online that talked about their sales in, in Britain, which has always been one of their big markets. Right. Fell from uh, 250,000 uh, hectos to 200,000 hectos between 2008 and 2014. Wow. That's yeah. Substantial. Fast. Yeah. yeah. Substantial, substantial and fast. <laughs> exactly. Um, they only make about uh, uh, 7 million barrels of beer a year, a little bit less than that. Mm-hmm. Or actually, I should say 7 million hectos, which is something like 6 million barrels, um, which, which is a lot of beer, but uh that's not uh and that's uh, that's out of saint jane's gate they had another maybe two million um in their other breweries they have breweries in africa particularly right but you know when you compare that to the uh 100 million barrels that that anheuser-busch brews in the united states alone Mm -hmm. uh it's not it's not comparable in size and scale right uh on the other side carlsberg has done a really good job of staying focused on beer they do a lot of beer research they're doing stuff on uh, like on barley research to make mm-hmm. sure that when global warming comes, they have drought-resistant barley. Mm-hmm. Um, they do yeast research, all this kind of, uh, they're doing hop research. They've been really focused on beer mm-hmm. because they're a beer company. And how big are they? What's the what's the comparison to Guinness? Uh, I don't know uh, how many, they have, unlike Guinness, they have something like 140 brands in their portfolio uh, okay. and they've purchased a uh, some big big brands um mainly they've invested in eastern europe mm-hmm. and that was the first bet which looked great until uh russia's economy tanked and right. then that's put them in big trouble uh, I see. Um, and they've gotten into china so they they are the currently the fourth largest brewery in the world mm-hmm. um and all their brands and uh some yeah we have a yeah you have a nice little bar chart here which we can uh, even maybe post on the uh, the Beervana pa- Facebook page, but uh, right. Carlsberg has um, Carlsberg Group, I guess, has a six percent global market share. Um, and just to give you some context, AB InBev has a twenty-one percent uh, market share, and SAB Miller has a ten percent. They're number two. Heineken is third at nine percent. So when SAB Miller and AB InBev merge, they'll give them a thirty percent global market share, which is pretty darn. Amazing, and yeah. way way bigger than Carlsberg. Considering the next bet, the biggest one is Heineken at nine percent. So yeah. yeah. So talk a little bit about. I rattle on here way too long. Uh, talk a little bit about what what does it mean when you're when when you're a small brewery mm. uh, and you want to make a you know you 
it, it's streamlined. You want to make a beer, you make a beer. Mm-hmm. You want to talk to your customers and find out what they want to drink. You go out in the pub and you talk to the customers and they find out what they want to drink. Mm-hmm. It's really obvious. Um, even a even a brewery the size of uh, um, you know Sierra Nevada is extremely locked into that whole beer. They they know their customers, they know their products, they yeah. know the product developments. All streamlined. Yeah. These bigger companies is all amorphous. They got companies in Africa and Asia, and so. How- well, I think that I think the first thing to, uh, that strikes me, as you've noted, is that uh, Guinness is but one uh, profit stream uh, of many in Diageo's portfolio. Um, and I think actually, there's I think a good analogy maybe the the tech industry when you get these little little tech companies that are tightly focused on some kind of niche and then they get bought up by uh, one of the big guys you know Google buys somebody or uh, Microsoft buys somebody else um, uh, then suddenly they're just one division in a big corporation and they're fighting they have to fight for resources and fight for attention essentially from the corporate the corporate heads um, so I think it really does change the calculus a lot you're no longer necessarily you have this external c- competition um, with other beer companies, but you have this internal competition with the other uh, divisions. So if the hmm. if the distilled spirits section of Diageo is going nuts, you know, and these I don't know flavored vodkas or something are the you know are the thing that are going crazy, then uh, then you have to sit there and argue why you know resources should be spent on marketing and and promoting Guinness and and uh, money spent on um, new products. For example, it all becomes a real cold calculus of, of profits and profitability. And then what happens is when uh, you're a division like that and you start getting uh, uh, strained for resources, then exactly what you're talking about probably starts to, um, well, on a corporate scale, starts to diminish. So the amount of product research they do, market research they do, goes down. Now, you're talking about a lot of sort of basic market research where you're just going out and talking to customers but on a big corporate scale you do this you know you hire a market research firm and they go Mm -hmm. out and they do opinions and they do surveys for you and things like that um anyway what i what what i'm saying is that from a corporate from a corporate point of view beer is just but one product of many and so it's easy to lose focus on on the beer itself uh and you can Pretty quickly, I think, find yourself um, struggling in a corporate structure like that, especially if you're in a in a segment that's not doing so well. Yeah. Um, and the difference, of course, being that Carlsberg may have many different brands, but they're all beer brands, and they're still a beer company. And so you might there might be internal struggles about which of their Eastern European brands they might need to cut loose, or should they consolidate and, and make one big bigger region? I, know, I imagine those discussions. Uh, are a big part of it, but uh, just in terms of the focus on the beer and making sure that they have products that that they think will sell to the European market is probably um, still a paramount of paramount interest in in, in the company. So, um, so I do think that corporate structure matters a lot, mm-hmm. um, and I think it, in this case, uh, it seems like um, Guinness is making a push right now to try and and get some new traction through some new products, um, which is kind of a new thing, I suppose. Uh, it'd be interesting to see how that goes. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. Um, I, this has already been illuminating. I'm glad that you're bringing your insight. I hadn't, I, I hadn't really thought about the, uh, the, the ways the uh, different people would compete against each other within a company. If you have a company like Carlsberg that has, so I think they bought Baltica, which mm-hmm. is this large uh, uh, Russian brewery. Mm-hmm. 
do you have competition between the like the Carlsberg team and the Baltica team, or you can? And actually, this is one of the interesting things about the whole AB InBev constellation of small breweries they're they're buying up, which is you can, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. So if you're Goose Island and you've been bought by AB InBev and they're letting you run relatively independently, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have complete control over the profits you generate relative to the Anheuser-Busch profits. They're putting money in, they're taking money out. And so it, uh, depending on the corporate structure, it can be um, quite an internal struggle, potentially, <laughs> or there might be just this dedicated revenue stream and, and, there's, un, and there's agreements in place. But uh, it's almost inevitable that there'll be some tension among the different divisions, or in this case, maybe the different breweries uh, involved. There was a, uh, another uh, example of this when we visited England, where the Green King uh, group, yeah, um, and they had, I think, like maybe Bellhaven is a good example. So Green King bought Bellhaven Brewery in Scotland. And, and so, you know, how much does Bellhaven matter to Green King? You know, how many, how many, how much resources will be spent on, you know, refurbishing the brewery at Bellhaven and things like that it really depends on how well they're selling and how well they're selling, of course, depends on what kind of attention they're getting. So it's an interesting struggle. And I think we, we experienced a little bit of that in sort of the undertones of what we were being told by the brewmasters and things like that. Yeah. So that's interesting. One thing to interpret that, if you are a little brewery and you get bought by a big brewery, mm -hmm. your identity as a little brewery may change from being a brewery to being a brand. And you, that's a good the, way to think about it, yeah. the commitment that that company has to you is not as a commitment to a brewery, but as a widget that's being sold. And once you don't sell, you might be in trouble. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because uh, what I've been um, alluding to is the fact that if I'm an independent small brewery, I, you know, my revenues, what I can do with my brewery depends on exactly how much I sell of my beer. Um, and that calculus can change a little bit if you're part of a big brewery. Like you might get injections of capital that are independent of how much you're selling because they want to bet on your future. Or they might siphon off some of your profits to help a struggling brand, right? Uh, and so you lose control some of that, and that's that's an interesting uh, it's an interesting dynamic. And it's not always just you know who's brewing the best beer. It's kind of who's got the right growth trajectory. What are the markets we're most interested in? What do we think growth's going to happen? So even though it's crappy beer, but we think South Florida is you know the next biggest thing. You know, it's that kind of stuff. It's yeah, yeah. It, it gets into all kinds of interesting calculus. That's very fascinating. So I'm going to open. We've, we have random beer here. I'm going to open one of these random beers. <laughs> let's, let's have some beer. As we're talking all this economics. <laughs> we thought that uh, having a Carlsberg, and, a, and again, this might not be the most illuminating uh, beer tasting we could do while we're doing this. But um, no, and I wasn't entirely sure I could find a Carlsberg. Is that, yeah, I, they have almost no presence here. Okay, yeah, in, in, I their, don't... in their annual report, they list uh, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, and Asia. They don't even list North America. That's how it doesn't even... We don't even rate on their annual report so little. Yeah, uh, maybe a specialty beer store, but not that I check the big, the import section that much in my grocery store. But and it's, it's hard. Not. It's hard to imagine why they would carry that anyway. Like it's a kind of neutral mass market lager. Right. Why would Belmont Station bother carrying Carlsberg? Yeah, and they don't advertise in the U.S. as far as I can tell at all. No. As opposed to other European brands like Stella Artois and Heineken. So what I'm pouring out here is a beer that the Allagash oh, Brewery. About this one. Yeah, this is actually a nice beer. This was going to be my beer Sherpa recommendation. So we're we're, we're tasting, we're combining two things it here. It will be the beer Sherpa recommendation. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, it is called. It's for, so from uh, Allagash in Portland, Maine. It's called Little Brett. 
Ale fermented with Brettanomyces dry hop with mosaic hops. And it's a 4.8% Saison. Oh. Um, and I've had one of these already. They sent me two bottles. I've not. Uh, and I wrote recently about how mosaic has a real savory note, and I'm not very big fan of that. It's the, most people get tropical out of it. Yeah, and you're lamenting the fact that mosaic is just in everything these days. <laughs> yes, exactly. But this one... I love mosaic, by the way. Keep it up. This one uh, <laughs> works for me because it's savory. And that was kind of a shocker. I found this to be an incredibly green, spring-like beer. And um, we're passing out of spring, but as far as spring beers go, this really reminded me. It feels like drinking a garden of mm. freshness. So first, it's very effervescent, and it's quite light-bodied and light-colored. Uh, it's a pale yellow. It's very clear. Yep, which was a little surprising. It's so clear. Um, yummy. It's got it's got a pretty a pretty reasonable bitter kick to it uh especially because it's it's got a sort of a light body to to rest on yeah, it has this really basil caraway aroma and flavor to which me. i get none of at all by the way mm. <laughs> yeah absolutely so um so full of it's just it's like a fresh garden it's there's so it's almost like a an herb garden yeah it's like an mouth. it's like an herb garden it's a little bit of a the, the wet hop thing the fresh hop thing too i do get a little of the fresh hop thing i don't get any herbs by the way so just this is how mosaic hits some people and others differently yeah it's a it's a rare and exceptional example i get more of the citrus flavors from the mosaic yeah which i think is probably how they designed it mm-hmm. but it's a rare example two rare things about this is a rare example of how the savory works with this beer when they were probably designing it for the citrus, and also that how the uh, the hop and yeast flavors work together. It's yeah. kind of hard to get hops, aggressive well, yeast me, flavors. Yeah, to me, there's very little brett coming through. It's it's yeah, it's very minor. I think mm-hmm. um, it'll probably develop. It's very fresh, mm-hmm. and so they they use the brett for the esters more than the yeah. And then as it sits in the bottle a little bit longer, it'll. Oh, but that's really nice because it's a light summery beer. Yeah, and I love this use of brett. I think brett brett's better as a minor note than a than a major player so yeah if i you, could i could stand if it, if it does develop in the bottle uh i imagine it'd be even better because i could stand a little bit more tardiness from it hmm, interesting yeah i i was about to say i would recommend drinking it now <laughs> well no i don't know how it's going to evolve but i don't either that's great actually oh. disputes are great we you can only yeah you'd have to run the experiment and see yeah. whether it evolves better or not mm. good job Alagash. good job Alagash. All right. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about is consolidation, because okay. this is the other thing, another big issue that mm-hmm. I noticed, is that um, these big breweries, once they become big public entities, it seems like they have to be on a growth chart. There's no way to to, to shrink or stay stagnant. Mm. Uh, it, that's like real death. And even looking at the, uh, the annual report for Carlsberg, which had kind of a rough year, it wasn't that rough a year. They went down like one or two percent or something, and it was real doom and gloom. And you mm-hmm. read the, the news, the news about it. You know, they were really talking about how this is a catastrophe. Well, one or two percent is. I mean, the company is is not in a, in a crisis at that mode. Right. But um, they do have to continue. They're like sharks. They have to continue to grow and 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 go forward. And you really saw this. Uh, so the two different stories here from these two breweries. One is um, Guinness uh, in the. Uh, mid 20th century opened a, a, ma- a major brewery in London, in the, in a region of London called Park Royal, mm-hmm. and it was so they actually had kind of two headquarters. There was partly a uh, uh, a classic little Irish 
brewery that made beer for Ireland, but it was also this international brewery. And Park Royal was sort of projecting the brand outward across Europe from from Great Britain, and it was a it was a major brand right. in, in the UK. Um, eventually, sales dropped, and they closed Park Royal, and it's this big kind of hole in the center of everything now. It's interesting how it's it's like that it was it's like a lost limb you know they still talk about park royal park (laughs) Park royal is still kind of there and in fact diageo the company is located on the park royal site Uh. which is super fascinating um so and and now this this loss of status seems to kind of permeate the 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 feeling of what's happening at guinness uh on the carlsberg side the thing that's fascinating is was what I referenced earlier. They look, you know, when you look at the map and you see that it is that there is, if you think of it as like a chessboard, mm-hmm. and there's every company, every country has its own mass market logger, right. and they're all like pawns in your global, your you know, your, your race for global domination. You kind of pick where you want to go. Do I want to go to Brazil? Do I want to go to Russia? Do I want to go to China? Yeah. India? Where am I going to go and like try to get get in on that market and then expand? And and the big breweries made different choices. Um, going into Eastern Europe, I, I don't know anybody else that went into Eastern Europe. I think Carlsberg was the one that decided to lock down Eastern Europe. And, and for a while, it was a great move because the Russian economy was was booming with, with oil sales way high. Right. Oil sales collapsed, the, the Russian economy tumbled, and um, the Eastern European sales fell 14% from 2014 to 2015. Yeah, when times get rough, it always turned to vodka. Right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, Baltica. Yeah. is isn't serious enough. <laughs> Um, so I guess I just am wondering, uh, this, the, the, you know, how, uh, Oh, I think that, so I'll, I'll just jump in. I'm not exactly sure this is the point you want me to make, but I think there's two points. One, I've kind of made the, the internal point, which is the growth motive becomes, uh, huge when you're, when you're a division in a, in a, in a for-profit company, because they're always going to look for the next, next growth center, right? They're always looking for growth, growth, growth. But the growth motive also becomes paramount as soon as you go public and become a public corporation, right? Uh, because you know investors are fickle and they're looking to invest in companies that they think they that will grow and will um, grow their uh, uh, grow the investors' assets. Um, and so it's it's a bit of a you know going public is great because it's an infusion of capital and it's uh, access to capital markets that you wouldn't otherwise get necessarily but it also really ties you into this to this growth and it can can bite end up biting you uh, because if you start slowing down even if you're a sort of a, a going concern and making good profits if you if your growth starts slowing down um, then fickle investors can withdraw the money and your share price falls and all of a sudden your capital falls and the things you're able to do is uh, is, is constrained so it- there's another factor here too. Mm-hmm. Uh, am I cutting you off? No, go ahead. Which is, it seems like it leads inexorably to bland beer. Like it, it, you know, it, it kind of you're when you're always on the move for growth. It's it, like it, yeah, it forces you to look for the big, the big growth centers and and you know look for the beer you can sell the heck out of, right? Right. Uh, and so you start heading towards the lowest common denominator. We see this in 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 in, in industry across the board. Just take Hollywood for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what is the what is the st- the status of Hollywood these days? It's all these big franchises with very little creativity, but a whole lot of almost guaranteed profits. You know what makes money? Well, special effects make money, and superheroes and. <laughs> uh, so uh, you know, it's 
it's it's a similar thing i think in beer is you got to look for the thing that you can sell a lot of it it's happened once before sort of the mass market loggers became mass market loggers because of it in that sense i think it was less to do with uh, sort of the corporate growth uh, uh uh imperative and more just because of logistics um getting big just in terms of economies of scale becoming a big brewery and being able to distribute uh and, and capture those economies were a big part of why uh, you settled on one sort of beer that you could sell the heck out of, um, but yeah, this is a second thing. I think this is this is going to be an interesting thing as we get more Sierra Nevadas, Boston Brewing, yeah. New Belgiums. Like, how are they going to manage this? Because it's hard to keep riding on reputation of being an innovative brewer, and it's hard to have too many different beers out there because it's hard to sell them all. Right? Uh, you know, which do you push, and where? What what do you devote shelf space to? Uh, you know, all of these, I think, mid-sized brewers are, 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 are facing these kinds of struggles. It's the, it's the pattern that Guinness has gone through, I think. Guinness mm-hmm. is this brewery that, uh, uh, you know, they've been around, uh, you know, heading, heading towards their third, completing their third century. Mm-hmm. And uh, they make one of the most, dis- or ha- have made one of the most distinctive beers in the world. And I think FES, uh, which is a beer they still make, is it qualifies as one of the most distinctive beers in the world. But... You know, you're trying to sell the same beer century after century, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it just seems like it's this. You know, when I look at a little brewery like Dupont, mm-hmm. they don't have the big sales. They can afford to sell this quirky little beer and not make any compromises because yeah. they, you know, if they, if they, if Olivia Daydecker sells uh, 500 cases less of of Saison Dupont one year than the next year, he doesn't care. He might not even notice. <laughs> but you know, that one percent drop. Uh, that he doesn't notice is catastrophic at at uh, St James Gate. Right, right. Yeah, and Guinness is just almost a weird uh, uh, anachronism in itself, just because the one beer that it's sold the heck out of is a, you know different than the rest of the, the global beers that dominate. Yeah. They're not you know light lagers. Uh, it's not a light lager. It's a dark ale. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's been able to um, uh, have that segment to itself and it's been able to kind of uh sell itself as something different and unique but um its ability to continue to grow in that segment is clearly uh gone and it's in a corporate structure where it's got to show it's got to show the bean counter something special so uh right uh, so some growth show some momentum um and so i think that's one of the reasons why you're seeing their their forays into different kinds of beers now yeah, I know that we're gonna. I don't want to run too long today, and uh, we we could talk a lot about this. I, I do yeah. want to drop one quote in here okay. just to show. Uh, I I had a nice tour of the brewery with uh, Stephen Kilcullen, mm-hmm. um, one of the brewers there at Guinness. Uh, one of the most genuinely kind and nice people I've encountered in brewing, <laughs> and I kept asking him asking him these questions that he couldn't answer uh, because Guinness puts him on a really short rope, mm. um, and. Uh, that he just had to be cagey and it showed it illustrates that when you work in one of these big companies you have there are all these internal rivalries that we've talked about all these uh these different you know you're 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 looking out for a brand you're looking out for uh even in even in the guinness side you've got the marketers on the one side and you've got the brewers on the other you've got all these rivalries and all these nested uh problems and and it means that it seems to create a, a, a culture of risk aversion 
people mm. don't want to be out there because there's really no gain for doing something really crazy. Right. Uh, right. But there's a huge you you can lose a lot if you if you're too crazy right. and, and right. get out in front of your get out of your skis, as mm-hmm. Joe Biden says. So when I was interviewing, I just pulled part of the quote. Uh, uh, you can kind of hear how our interview went and, and how very different this interview was than any interview I would do with a small brewer. Um, here we're talking about uh, how the yeast works, and um, you can hear how, how reluctant he is to divulge very much. All right. And how long does your yeast take to do primary fermentation? Um, it's a number of days. It's a number of days. Is it, would you call it vigorous or slow? I would call it... Uh, in the middle. Okay. <laughs> it's quite a robust yeast. It's okay, quite a robust yeah. yeast. And we probably ferment a lot higher than the majority of breweries. Oh, you do? Probably. Well, uh, <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you pitch it and let it rise or do you... We free rise it yeah. uh, to a couple of degrees, <laughs> probably two to three degrees, and okay. then we maintain that temperature for a period of time. So there you can kind of hear that Stephen wasn't really sure what he could talk about, what he couldn't talk about. And, uh, you know, I think if we had just been two guys talking about beer, he would have been happy to tell me everything. But in this context, you know, he's got he's part of a multi-billion dollar corporation and he can say what he can say. Yeah, it's interesting to me, though, how KJ Guinness is, because it's not as if people are going to try and uh, come up with a Guinness clone or somehow their market is going to be under threat if they tell you what kind of yeast they use and stuff. And most brewers that I know are very open about uh, well, many are. Yeah, I, I, well, that's enough, maybe for another pod. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we should have the second beer, and then maybe you can open that, and I'll start talking about uh, the uh, the last little piece here, which is how craft brewing fits into all of this. Because I think um, what we're seeing is I mentioned earlier. There's this you could view the globe as a. Uh, chess board where it's all the same beer right because we all make mass market lager mm-hmm. well now that's a little bit changing now instead of looking at it as a chess board where everybody makes mass market lager you could look at it as a chess board where people are making different flavors and mass market lager is the largest by far the largest but declining mm-hmm. but then there's this other thing that's going on which is craft brewing yeah and that's where all the growth is so how these breweries get into that is uh the next the last topic i want to touch on yeah okay well before we do that i'll open this beer this is um from double mountain brewing company in hood river oregon uh and this is their cluster single single hop ipa i'm using cluster hops uh, yeah as you might imagine it's a uh, 7.3% uh, beer. They list it at 85 IBUs. And this is cool because Cluster is this ancient hop. This was used, this 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 hop was grown in California, and uh, I think California, California in the United States uh, as late as, or in Oregon and Washington, as late as, as early as the 1800s. So this was like, this is the old American hop. And um, it's the only single Cluster hop beer I know of. And... Uh, so it's interesting because it's, it's supposedly kind of a rough, harsh hop that has died off. And uh, I uh, anyway, we'll, we'll see what we think. Okay. I, I've, I've had this beer in past years and enjoyed it. So It is similarly effervescent to the last one, although it's um, darker color, more of straw, uh, not quite as clear. Mm. Smells like hops, I bet. Smells like hops, although not like overwhelmingly. No, it has a little bit of a malt in the, in the mm-hmm. nose, too. Yeah. Mm. And in fact, it's quite balanced. 
for for a Northwest IPU IPU <laughs> <laughs> for a Northwest IPA. Yeah, it's um, it's a little bit more of a full-bodied IPA, uh, pretty effervescent, and these hops are interesting. They have the the there's a thing that is in American hops that is uh, contributes a black currant or muscat grape quality, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and I, apparently these are have have it in very high amounts, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a uh, considered a kind of funny flavor that is harsh and yeah, it's not weird. one of these modern citrus bombs. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's a different, but it does have a distinctive American quality. Those hops seem they don't seem European in any way, mm-hmm. but they do have kind That's of a, an astringency, mm-hmm. kind of a yeah. They certainly do in their. And it's a pretty big bitter charge on the back of the tongue at the the aftertaste. Yeah, it's but a, yeah, the, it doesn't seem too bitter until you swallow, and it's kind of a rough. Yep, going down, it's rough. Yep, it's one of those. I consider it more sort of old style. I, yeah, uh, I, I think a lot of that comes from these hops too. Not IPAs just the way that sort of starts melting your tongue quickly. Yeah, um, but yeah, the flavor is interesting. It's um, yeah, I think that's that's uh, um, sort of. Uh, current or raisin almost a little bit of flavor in there mm-hmm. it's nice though i like it interesting beer if you're in the northwest it's really worth trying just to try this hop this old old hop yeah by the way i, I i'll just uh, get, promote single hop beers in general because if you really want to know what a hop uh character is then then doing a single hop beer with it really lets you know and that's yeah, the first time they brewed this, they did it for a little single hop fest that was in town. I actually saw Charlie Devereaux there. They called it, it was, the word that they used was cluster plus another word, which is, yes. a, is a marine term that some of you may know. Uh, and I said, oh, what hop did you use in it? And he looked at me with this kind of withering uh, pity. And, and then I realized, oh, yeah, it was right there in the name. Um and I loved that. That was the only time they did that that fast, and it was a great fast. And and this beer came out, and they're still making it. So yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, this last thing. Let's talk a little bit about craft brewing, uh, and just we can just kind of think about how uh, how things are evolving, how mm-hmm. how how they could evolve, uh, yeah. and get back to that opportunity that you that you were talking about. At Guinness, there you have a thing that they've just recently done this year. They opened it. It's called the Open Gate Brewery, and it's a little test brewery they have uh, at St. James Gate, and they mm. brew whatever they want. And right. it's it it apparently at the brewery was considered a radical step, but it looks exactly like you would expect any brewery in the United States to have it. If you're a big brewery, you're gonna have a test brewery. Right. You're gonna make beer that's only gonna be served in that little brewery. Um, you know, even if your Widmer does it, Deschutes does it here. Anheuser-Busch does it, uh, Miller Coors does it, everybody does it. So right. it, it doesn't actually seem that radical, but, uh, <laughs> you know, when you're founded in when 1759. Yeah. Guinness, yeah. <laughs> so they're, they're pushing that way a little bit, and I think that they will get, I think one of the advantages of that, of course, is just you get to see what people like, and it'll help you in product development. There's not so, so much to talk about on the Guinness side. On the, on the Carlsberg side, it's much more interesting. Mm-hmm. Carlsberg in 2005 founded this brewery called Jacobson. Same same thing. Small brewery inside the main brewery in Copenhagen. The main brewery's actually now left. They moved it to a place outside of Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. Um, and they make craft beer in the Jacobson brand. And it, weirdly, it's really well regarded in, in uh, the uh, in Denmark. Mm. They uh, they sell a lot of it, and the specialty ones when they come out with them 
sell well on the on the secondary markets and stuff. They're it does kind of well. Um, and then the other thing that they've done is uh, they have partnered with the Brooklyn Brewery mm-hmm. from Brooklyn, New York, right? And opened little craft breweries in Denmark and Sweden. And we have a quote here from the chairman of the uh, foundation. Uh, Fleming Biesenbacher, who talks a little bit about their craft strategy. Okay, let's roll tape. We are, of course, realizing that, as you call this, I wouldn't call it disruption, but radical changes, that what we're seeing is that we're seeing that sort of the segment of craft brewing and super premium beer is growing with double-digit numbers. And we are also, we would like to play also an important role in that game here. We have, as I said, a microbrewery here in Denmark, we have a microbrewery in Stockholm, which is a collaborative effort between Brooklyn and Karlsburg. Mm. We also have collaboration with Brooklyn Brewery in, now in Trondheim in Norway. And uh, so we have a very close collaboration with uh, Brooklyn Brewery. So that's really interesting because pretty much most or all of the attempts for big brewers to create a, crap, a true craft beer brand have failed which uh, is evidenced by Anheuser-Busch's uh, abandonment of that strategy for the most part and, right. and acquisition of all these independent, independent breweries. So it's, uh, I suppose it speaks to their integrity that they're able to uh, gain traction among the beer drinking public in, in uh, Scandinavia. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, you know, every, every country has its own context, and, and it seems like possibly because of the, this foundation, and the funding that they've done for for research projects and and various other things, maybe they're mm-hmm. maybe Carlsberg is a point of pride more in uh, Denmark than than Anheuser Busch is in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and maybe not con- seen as so much in opposition to craft beer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, I will go back and say that I do fear a little bit for Guinness. Yeah. Um, they've been so tradition bound and so they've they've pinned so much of their identity on this one beer. Um, that, you know, quite frankly, I wish them luck. I don't wish them to fail, but I suspect that these new beers are going to not find much traction in the United States um, that they're brewing. And I almost think that the best exit strategy for Guinness is for that division to end up being uh, bought out by a, by a beer company um, in which it will be one of the, one of the um, set of beers that they, that they offer. But... Um, uh, or maybe maybe extracting themselves from Diageo and becoming an independent company again. Yeah. Um, but I'm but but I do I am concerned for old, for old Guinness. I don't think they're going to disappear. I don't think that beer will ever go away. Um, it'll be around with us for some uh, um, in some form or another. But uh, I suspect that these current efforts to brand it, what I would what I would describe as trying to market itself as essentially a craft brewer. Um, but still trying to brew mass market beers is, is not going to work. Well, yeah, and let's you you began the talk with uh, talking about something that I wanted to loop back on, which is I okay. think one of the opportunities these breweries have. And when you're on site, when it's just a brand and you're standing in front of the the beer aisle and you see uh, you know a can of beer and it's got a, one label on it, and you mm-hmm. see it's next to a can of beer with another label on it, you can't really feel the brewery or, or understand what it's like. Uh, from their context until you visit the brewery. And this is actually the main reason I think I'm going to continue to go to Junkets as long as people keep hiring me to go there uh, or keep flying me over. 
you see things that are really made. These old breweries have amazing stuff sure. going on. Yeah. Carlsberg has. Uh, we went down into the the cellars underneath the brewery. They have something like seven kilometers of cellars down there. <laughs> And they've been, they've begun to start stashing old beers that they've been brewing from Jacobson, and then they also do this thing at Carlsberg where they brew every like every winter they do a specialty beer that they they distribute to the the, the staff basically, mm-hmm. and these things sell for scads of dollars on the the secondary markets when they get out, um, and they've just been throwing cases of them in this one of the cellars. So we went down and tasted some of these old things. They're like old box and really cool beers. Um, and then the, the the you know it's a 19th century campus. One of the biggest stops in, in Copenhagen is the Elephant Gates, which are these giant elephants that are outside this beautiful Victorian brewery. Mm-hmm. So there's all this all this stuff that that is right there that works in in terms of um, the story of the brewery, mm-hmm. the history, the kind of life of the brewery. Um, and then Guinness has even Guinness is just crazy. Guinness has so many assets. Guinness still has basically all its land that it's had. It has all these warehouses filled with those giant wooden vats that they used to age their beer in. Right. They have, I think they still have, uh, they they have they definitely have they have a brand new lead certified wonderful brewery which is great. But they have the one that was that was right before that, which is a big large industrial brewery which looks great. And I think they have the one that was a hundred years before that somewhere <laughs> on that campus. I don't right. think they have. Arthur's first brewery. Um, they have this amazing archive of all the stuff they've ever made going back to about uh, 1789, I think. They don't have the very, very early records. Uh-huh. Um, and, of course, they have all the history and, and stuff. I mean, I think if you took a craft brewer to Guinness and said, partner with us, come to our brewery and make a beer, look, at, look around at mm-hmm. what we got, what would you make if you came to our brewery? I think any craft brewery worth of salt in the world would say, oh, my God. We are going to make some amazing barrel-aged beer here. We're going to turn out some really fascinating stuff from your archives. We're going to look at some of those old porters you were making back at the turn of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing opportunities. Yeah, and yeah. I think this is this is you know when you don't think about when that Guinness is not thinking like craft beer. Yeah. Well, I think you're exactly right, but the question is, does that fit in the corporate structure of Diageo, right? So that would be something that the Guinness division would say, hey, this is what we want to do. And Josh would be like, okay, well, how quickly are you going to sell this stuff? How much are you going to sell? This is actually, and I think, Interesting. I think I've mentioned this conversation before in this pod, so I won't, I won't do it, uh, uh, stay on it too long, but just say that um, I once took a group of uh, economics undergrads from Oregon State over to the Rogue Brewery where the owner at the time, Jack Joyce, uh, was, uh, was asked precisely this, you know, why don't, why don't the big breweries, why don't Anhe- why doesn't Anheuser-Busch and Miller uh, brew this kind of beer and sell it if it's so popular? Uh, and he said, he said, well, they definitely could. They could probably brew, you know, an IPA that's better than anything we could brew. Um, but the corporate structure just doesn't, doesn't lend itself to it, that the marketers immediately, if you want to come up with a new product, the marketers want to know how to sell it. And the... Uh, um, and they want to know how much, you know, what are the sales projections? How quickly is it going to, and if it doesn't, if it's something that doesn't hit and sell in mass quantities immediately, yeah. then they just don't even know how to deal with it. It's just not even part of their, <laughs> their consciousness. Like, well, that's not going to work. So forget it. Um, because it's all opportunity costs, right? You know, if you're going to take shelf space away from bud, it better be for something that's going to sell like, like gangbusters. And these things take a while. It's going to take a long time to develop attraction with, with beer. So you have to, you have to be able to create a structure in which those brands can grow organically in, in, in the markets. I think that's what Anheuser-Busch has basically decided to do. 
Yeah, there's a it's a funny it's a funny catch catch twenty two, right? Because on the one hand, these big companies are looking at it. And there's 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 basically not so many more companies to buy, so yeah. the, the 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 chessboard is getting getting hard to, to work. And everybody knows the trends. Craft beer is growing internationally in double digits. Um, it may, may be slowing down the United States a little bit, but um, mm-hmm. that's only because the base is getting bigger. Uh, so that's where the growth is. They look at the mass market lager, continues to shrink, continues to shrink, continues to shrink. So there has to be, they see that the craft beer is where the future is. But the mentality of how you produce those kinds of craft brands mm-hmm. is not something that's embedded in the culture of these large companies. And they can't get from there to here. No, most good good craft brands of any reasonable size uh, are the product of an enormous amount of hard work and time that has been put into it, um, you know, four or five, six, seven years growing this, this brand, um, working really hard. And that's just that kind of patience is not part of the corporate culture or corporate structure. You just can't, you can't afford to have that kind of patience unless you really carve out a niche or carve out space for, for something to grow. And, and the patience just isn't there for most corporations. So, yeah. So it's interesting. It is interesting. So it's very they're very different. Uh, they both make beer, but they don't function at all. Like they don't. They're not really the same species, are they? Yeah. No. And I'll just say one one final thing because I had a couple of student uh, journalism students. I laughed just because I think of journalism as almost entirely dead. So I I looked at them and <laughs> I think. Gosh, I hope there's a job for you when you finish. But they are they they, they want it's always to marketing. They can always work for Diageo. That's right. There's always PR, uh, which seems to be the 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 actual journalism is just the apprenticeship for the, I know, for the PR job. What I said was so cynical. I'm sorry, everybody. Stay in stay in school. Get your well. As an economist, I'll just say that it's I think great. I think that real investigative journalism is public good, and I think it's ridiculous that we've allowed it to to shrink so much in this country, and we're worse off for it. Having said that, they wanted to ask here, here. they wanted to ask about. Um, uh, sort of the trajectory of these bigger craft brewers and the trajectory of the of the big industrial brewers. And essentially, um, uh, my point was that a lot of these big craft brewers are going to start facing these existential threats. And in fact, I think that Boston Brewing is already, I think that Sam Adams Lager, as we mentioned in the previous yeah. pod, is the sales are declining dramatically. So how is it that these brewers, as they grow big and need to, basically sell a lot of beer yeah. uh, how are they going to to deal with that new circumstance where they're becoming essentially similar to these mass market brewers uh, of the past that they've sort of um, their whole identity is competing against or or uh, or creating a product that's distinct distinct from those um, so it's it's going to be interesting when you when you get the size of the Sierra Nevada for example you uh, you know how much pale ale are you selling, and how long are customers going to still consider you to be craft, and how much is it just going to get old and boring, and now they want to look somewhere else. So it's going to be, it's going to be interesting, I think, um, and that's what's fascinating to me is that middle ground. How are these big sort of regional and almost national now national craft brands? Well, they're yeah, Sierra Nevada is definitely Sierra Nevada national. is definitely a national brand. So how are they going to negotiate this idea that maybe now they're really becoming not too distinct from a Coors and a Miller and a Bud. Yeah, it's super fascinating. It's uh, it's interesting. I hope that the lessons that we talked about here that I saw at the big breweries are taken seriously by Ken Grossman and Jim Cook and all these guys, and they continue to be committed to the beer because I think when you once you start thinking of it as a widget, we as consumers are the losers in that that mm-hmm. equation. Yeah, and it's not even you know it's. 
uh, Boston Lager is still a good beer, and Minsiana Nevada Pale Ale is a great beer. And, Absolutely. Um, so it's it'd be interesting to see how the market dynamics uh, 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 evolve over time. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I think we should put a wrap on our discussion of uh, big brewers and European junkets and <laughs> how Jeff got got jetted and wined and dined. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, but but uh, you know, you know my number. The beer accent, the the underscore beer accent, yahoo.com. That's uh, right. If you have a big European brewery, I'm there. That's right. I'll tell you, by the way, that he no longer accepts junkets that don't fly in business class. Though, so that's. <laughs> Carlsberg did not fly me business class. I almost didn't. Oh, go. you went anyway? I know. I toughed it out. Jeff, you have to maintain standards. Uh, Come on. It was, uh, it was a grueling experience. I didn't know you could be had for so cheap. <laughs> uh, okay. Oh, yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, our beer shipper recommendations, one has been made. It is the... Little Brett from Allagash. Little Brett from Allagash. And since we're talking about Maine, I decided to, um, uh, for my beer ship, uh, sort, of, um, sort of touch two, two topics with one, with one beer. Uh, one is Maine, uh, and um, my beer ship recommendation is Geary's Pale Ale, which is sort of their flagship beer. Uh, but I mentioned it because it's a it's a nice, pretty faithful representation of an English style pale. Right. And on the West Coast, these things are hard to find. Yeah. So uh, my family has um, uh, some property in in Maine, and every once in a while, I get myself out to Maine, uh, and I love to pick up a bunch of Geary's Pale Ale because it's just a beer that you don't find much on the West Coast. No, not at all. Uh, but it's a really delightful English style pale. So it's a malt a malt forward uh, beer. Um, with uh, amended water, I think, or at least they have. Yeah, it totally tastes that way to me. Yeah. Um, so I, I recommend uh, Geary's Pale Ale for those uh, those listeners on the, the East Coast. It's probably easy to find. On the West Coast, it's not so easy. But uh, but I mentioned it because it's a nod to our, our brethren over in the United Kingdom who have just decided to go it alone and face the, <laughs> face the world. As, <laughs> yep, the as English. A, as an isolated island. Uh, so yeah, raise, raise the gears to the Brexit. <laughs> cool. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks very much uh, for listening to the podcast for another week. A few words about how to get in touch. Um, Jeff, of course, as we mentioned, blogs at Birvana and all about beer. I tweets it at uh, Birvana. Get in touch in that way. But the best way to get in touch is to email him at the underscore beer at yahoo.com. If you email, email him about the pod, you're basically emailing us both. And we didn't have a mailbag because we didn't get any mail so this is a catastrophe yeah get off your dust come on yeah surely we (laughs) we said something controversial or offensive that you can write in about at the very least yeah yeah. let us you know criticize us yeah write in and tell us why the brexit's a good thing and a good thing for beer right uh you can also visit the beer von blog facebook page another good way to get in touch uh anyway so please do send us your questions and comments we uh we rely on you for stimulating questions and and uh, future topics excellent all we right. do indeed and um i guess that's a wrap that's a wrap so i'll uh what do i have oh i have the allagash uh little brett and that means you have the double mountain cluster all right all well right. this is definitely a cheers gotta we gotta we gotta keep it in the the english idiom yeah well we still have the queen so to the queen <laughs> god save the queen god save the queen cheers <laughs> <laughs>